Welcome to the Layer of Secrets podcast, the podcast about gaming and being a geek by two middle-aged geek dads. I am David Moore, and I am almost caught up on the sleep I lost during my escape to and from New York. And I'm Ken Newquist, and I've been decking the halls and booting up the Christmas tree, or at least the geek tree. So, so tell me of this escape to and from New York. Last year, the high school that my, my daughters both have gone to was supposed to march in the Macy's Day Parade. Something that most people should probably know about happened, and the Macy's Day Parade did not go off as planned. Uh, so they, basically any of the bands that were supposed to march last year, marched this year. Slight complication was my oldest daughter graduated last year. Luckily, any of the graduates who still wanted to march, they were going to let march, as long as they could show up for the practice like the week before. And since she's going to school locally, she was able to attend as well. We all went to New York. Lots of parents also went. There's a company that, you know, basically it's like, hey, we're going to do this whole whirlwind tour of New York and you'll see the Macy's Day Parade and we'll take care of everything. And so you pay us lots of money and we'll ship you out there and feed you and house you and cart you around on buses. Lots of buses. However, our bus drivers were amazing. We started out at, we got up at two in the morning on Tuesday morning of the weekend of Thanksgiving here and made it to the high school around 3.30. And then they bust us to the airport and we got on, uh, they had chartered. We have so many kids in our band and our guard that we needed three entire airplanes. Wow. There's a, a charter airplane service that we booked three airplanes through there. We were, they're going to do three waves of us. We were in the first wave and we were all like, Oh man, we have to get up so early because we're in the first wave. And then we got out there and then we found out that waves two and three were both delayed. Wave two got delayed twice because wave two, they had a fuel spill and they got that cleaned up and then they spilled the fuel again. So they had to clean it up again. <laughs> and then, oh my gosh. Then, but then they got the plane to Indianapolis. But because the pilots had been on duty for so long, they could no longer legally fly and they had to get a new crew in so that they could fly out to New York. So instead of three planes four hours apart, we left. And then the next morning, the other two flights finally oh, left. Wow. Wow. Yeah, they were supposed to do a practice run at the hotel. We stayed at a hotel in... I'm trying to remember the name of the town, but it was in just across the border in New Jersey, across the river. And they were supposed to practice in the morning, but that had to get canceled, moved around because two thirds of the people weren't there. <laughs> that would be a problem. Yeah. But we did a lot of fun stuff. Went to Times Square. They took pictures of us in Times Square on Thursday evening. Sorry if you heard the groaning in there. That's the, the cave dog who is just stretching while napping. Went to Union Terminal, which we often call Union Station, but because it's a terminus, it's actually called Union Terminal. Okay, okay. We went a bunch of different places. It's hard to keep it all straight because we didn't get more than six hours of sleep a night from Tuesday until Saturday. So we were, we were, at least Aaron and I were very sleep deprived by the end of it all. But some of the highlights were Thursday morning, 
day of the parade, they dropped us off on 64th Street, Central Park West, which uh, it's a cross street of Central Park West. So we were on the west side of Central Park where the parade route goes pretty early in the parade route. They dropped us off at six in the morning. The parade went by us at 11. So... Basically, we got to know some of the local, uh, some of the local people, some of the people who traveled from out of town, some of the people who came from from our town were also in the general vicinity. We met a really nice couple and their parents. Talked to them for like five hours. <laughs> luckily, <As> one does. <laughs> yeah, luckily Aaron is brilliant, and we had gone to like the Walgreens the day before and gotten heat pads for like muscle aches. Okay. You know, you know the hot hands that you get that are. Like oh yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's basically that, but there's a special strap with Velcro. It's a disposable thing that just goes around your waist, and so my lower back was was quite warm, and since blood flows through that area, it kept me quite warm most of the time. My my biggest problem was the fact that we were standing for five hours on a street, <laughs> not moving a whole lot, so my feet were sore. But the parade was amazing. We got really good pictures. Got some good pictures of my daughters as they walked by doing their routines with the band. It was pretty amazing. So they were both in the parade broadcast, of course. I think it might have been NBC. We've got some video of them and stuff. It was pretty amazing. It was a great time. And again, I'm still trying to catch up on sleep for it. (laughs) Between that and just catching up on the, the work and everything. It's uh, catching up on sleep has been is something I need to focus on. So what's it what's it like to see the balloons up close? It's pretty cool. It's uh, it was a lot cooler than I thought, and it was also interesting. Like, and they're huge. They're they are massive. You know, like the st- the typical size. They're like half a block long, and they wow. probably have like twenty ish minders holding the ropes. And those bigger ones, the, 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 I don't know, the signature sort of ones have a minder at the front, um, sometimes more than one. They'll have a guy with an anemometer because we were on 64th street, which is a cross street. He'll hold up the anemometer and measure the wind speed. And then they'll guide the balloon to the left and the right so that it doesn't hit streetlights or or trees on Central Park. One of the other things that was also interesting is Central Park West, that that road has stoplights. But they yes, take they take giant balloons down the middle of it. What happened to the stoplights? <laughs> what they do because this happens every single year, those stoplights are specially constructed that at 4 in the morning Crews come out and they're they're on a pivot. You can swing one arm of them out of the way and it goes over the sidewalk instead. And then after everything's done, they'll swing them back so they're out over the road and lock them into position. Nice. Yeah. By looking at it, you wouldn't even you even when they're swung out of the way, you can't really tell that they're meant to move. But they they totally do. It's pretty neat. I could keep going on. We 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 Went to several other places. We went to the 9-11 Memorial, which was pretty, having lived through it, was pretty uh, um, powerful. Uh, We went on a cruise in the 
uh, in the river and got pretty close to the Statue of Liberty. Uh, it was a dinner cruise on Thanksgiving. So we're, our, our Thanksgiving meal was not homemade. <laughs> it was, it was okay. It was all right. Uh, and the girls certainly had a lot of fun. I was glad Aaron and I, when we got home, we, we made a full Turkey that weekend and stuff. So a good Thanksgiving dinner on Sunday. But anyway, like I said, I could, I could keep going on and on bits and pieces are now flooding back into my brain as I start to talk about it. Uh, rather than that, how about we talk about what's been going on with you? Yeah, I got my, well, I got my COVID booster shot. Uh, so I'm, I'm still waiting for the superpowers, mutations, improved 5G, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so far, all I have is a sore arm, but we shall see. <laughs> I got Pfizer the first two rounds. I got Moderna the second or the third round. So because what we had available in our area, which I found kind of weird that you weren't able to get like Pfizer was everywhere when I got my first round of uh uh, shots and now it was like Moderna's your choice. So like, okay, mm-hmm. cool. You can you can mix it. You can mix and match. So yeah. uh, I am mixing yeah. and matching, and we will see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, I had Moderna was on was our only choice really when I went for the initial set, and we had a multiple choice thing, and so I just got Moderna as my booster. Yeah, so we'll see. Uh, I'm 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 hoping to what to uh to run the the sweet spot get through the speed spot, sweet spot of vaccination where uh, I feel kind of off tomorrow, you know, enough that you don't feel too guilty, not working, um, but well enough to play video games, which was my goal the first time around. Mm. And I totally did not, I did not achieve that goal. Cause I was, uh, I had a bad headache and fever after my second shot last time, although yeah. it's a lower dosage. It's only half of the normal dosage. So mm. hopefully I'll just get a sore arm and, and that'll be it. But that was the, the big adventuresome thing today. Uh, yeah. Tell us about the, the geek other thing. Yeah, the Geek Tree. So uh, the Geek Tree is now fully powered up. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the Geek Tree, it's a long-running tradition in the Newquist household. Ever since um, my geek ornament started overwhelming the family tree and needed to be exiled to their own tree sometime in the late '90s, I think uh, it all started with the uh, Starship uh, Starcraft, no Shuttlecraft Galileo in 1992. It's the second year that they offered Star Trek ornaments. I, my parents did not get me the Enterprise, which was the first one. And I have not gotten me the Enterprise because the 1991 version of the Enterprise goes for like a couple hundred dollars right now. And uh, I don't want it that much. Hmm. So the uh, it, it's great. Uh, the, the Geek Tree currently, it's, it's gone through many iterations over the years. Like originally it was like this small little three foot tree that you kind of put off to the side and had a couple of ornaments on it. But, you know, you get two or three or four ornaments every year. It adds up over 25 years and suddenly, well, you have a lot of ornaments. Yeah. And so uh, now I have a, a nine foot tall slender artificial tree. Um, so it's kind of, it's not quite a pencil tree. It's It's a little more wide at the base, but I, I don't have space in my house for yet another full-size nine-foot tree. Um, so this is a, a, a nice ca- uh, compromise. Um, but every time I've upgraded, I've had more space to put ornaments on the tree, uh, except last year it finally ran out of space and I had to figure out, okay, it's time to do themes because I have so many ornaments at this point. I mean, you could... I can actually pull off a themed tree. Yeah, you probably have more ornaments than tree if you really went all in. Oh yeah. I mean, last year I had, I was really running out of space to put them on the tree. I mean, I have so many cool ones too. Um, and so it, it was a little sad not to break them all out this year, but I will say it is, it is a more understated tree this year. It's probably more along the lines of what a normal Christmas tree looks like. Nice. 
Um, it also makes different boot noises. But so anyway, it's my theme this year was Star Trek because that's what I started collecting first. I have a lot of them, although I think I have a lot more Star Wars ornaments as I as I was going through things this year. But it's got 34 ornaments, most of which are starships. I have uh, Deep Space Nine as the tree topper because uh, nice. I couldn't find a good Star Trek tree topper. They actually make one. They make an Enterprise, but it's like 150 bucks, mm. and it weighs a fair amount. And I don't know that the slender geek tree. I think that the puppy's just going to run past it, hit it with his tail, and then the whole thing's just going to go down. So yeah, tree toppers uh, need to be light, not too light. Yes, but not definitely not too heavy, because yeah, they'll fall off. Kind of unwieldy. I looked at it. I was tempted. Uh, you know, it's my 50th birthday this year. So, you know, yeah. you know, if you're going to play the 50th birthday card on something, you could, <laughs> you could do it for a tree topper, I suppose. Yeah. But I just didn't think it was going to be practical. It plays the Star Trek theme, but uh, <laughs> nice. I didn't really need it. And the Deep Space Nine fits perfectly and it's nice and lightweight. Um, I think my uh, my favorite ornament is the City on the Edge of Forever, which features like the, the classic ring, stone ring with uh, McCoy, no, wait, Spock and Kirk coming through the gateway trying to chase down McCoy, right? Um, it's great, except, and it's string powered, so it, it lights up, which is pretty nifty. But unfortunately, after all these years, it came out in 2004, the sound seems to be failing. Mm. Um so, but it's cool because a lot of the early tree, all a lot of the early ornaments were uh, were string powered, and so they light up on their own. A lot of the latter ones, they switch to just doing batteries, mm-hmm. and those batteries are long dead, and I haven't gotten to replace them. And plus, then you have to press the little button for them to light up, so it doesn't like right. doesn't quite have the magic of like the warp nacelles lit up, <laughs> right, or the deflector dish lit up. So, right. Um, my uh, the newest ornaments on the tree are. Uh, there are networked ornaments, so the, I think it was. I think they debuted last year. They've had them for Star Wars for the last couple of years, but there are these um, storyteller ornaments where there's basically a network cable that proprietary, of course, that connects the different ornaments together. And then uh. when you play a button on one of them, it first of all it lights them all up, and then it reenacts a season, a scene. So the oh, Star wow. Wars ones okay. reenact a scene from A New Hope. Uh, the Star Trek ones reenact a scene from Mirror Mirror. So all of the ornaments are about like they're all like the alternative universe Star Trek figures from the classic Mirror Mirror episode. Nice. Um, and so they talk when you boot them up. And so the funny thing is, is so my daughter, I guess I had I had I had set up the Geek Tree and we turned it on for the first time. And mind you, my kids have never known a world in which there was no Geek Tree. They grew up with this thing. They've been hearing it boot in a particular right. way. For years. And when I say boot, when you turn it on, all of the powered ornaments start talking. <laughs> yes. And right. And so there's like this uh, for the, the Death Star, there's a uh, like Emperor Palpatine is talking about, like, you know, witness the, the firepower of this fully armed and operational battle station. Meanwhile, there's another ornament where C-3PO was whining about stuff. You've got Janeway offering season's greetings. The Borg are talking about how you're going to be assimilated for Christmas. And this cacophony is just... It's just the signature aspect of the geek tree. And the kids are like, when I turned it on for the first time, they're like, it sounds different. Hmm. I don't, I don't like it. Jordan's like, can't you oh. take some of the star Wars ornaments and put them on the back of the tree? Just so it, it sounds. Oh. <laughs> because <laughs> like it was, it, because tree. the star Trek was not there. They missed the star Trek. Because the Star Wars ornaments weren't there, they missed it, right? They missed all the other miscellaneous ones, yeah. Yeah, so it was hilarious, because of all the things that I thought would happen when I I switched to just a Star Trek tree, um, 
I did not think that the boot sequence would be something that they would miss, but they're nostalgic <laughs> for it. Like they grew up with it. So they're like, oh, I don't know if I like this. Um, all right, well, we're going to need a bigger house for a bigger tree so that I can put more ornaments on. Um, sure, sure. So we had a little bit of a spatial anomaly happen. Uh, I don't quite... Uh, I know you were talking about the geek tree, but we were right about to go to another uh, another thing that you would, were going to talk about, but I don't know what that was. Lost in space and time, but that's okay. We'll find our way back. Yeah. Oh, wait, that's Arkham Horror. Uh, <laughs> we don't want to cross genres here, right? Uh, so no, so I was... Um, so I have the standard ornaments for the geek tree, and they're all well and good, but I have been endeavoring to see if I can be a bit more crafty uh, because I, I do have fewer ornaments on the tree. And, you know, it's a space-themed tree, so I might be able to find some stuff that I could build that would augment the geek tree. So I, uh, I went on Pinterest... Oh no! And uh, I, <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, you know, you can lose yourself. Talk about being lost yes. in time and space, man. Yes. <laughs> Start thinking about a project and go looking on uh, Pinterest, and yes, you will most definitely be lost time and space in the internet. Yeah, it's um, a great resource. I found these cool. Yeah, I found these cool, um, especially for hobbies, right? Like a lot yeah. of people, I think, have a tendency to kind of think about it as being kind of this niche thing, like you're redecorating your house and you're looking for patterns and what have you. Um, or you're bullet journaling and you want examples of a bunch of uh, like how people have illustrated their bullet journals. But there's a lot of cool crafty stuff out there. Mm -hmm. And I came across these nice ornaments uh, like they're clear. You know, you take a clear plastic ornament and then you take uh, some adhesive glue that you spray in. It's like spray adhesive glue that you spray on the inside of it. And then you swirl some glitter on the inside of the uh, ornament. OK. And it makes like this nice like galaxy or nebula effect as it just kind of like swirls around on the inside. That's the plan, anyway. I mean, I could just cool. end up with a ridiculous amount of glitter everywhere, which is why my wife said, you are doing this outside. Yep, yep. Or just to, we like, a young big, kids. We know how this goes. A big snot ball encased in glass right. or something. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how this actually goes. But she is a wise woman. She has uh, done similar projects uh, over the years. And, uh, yes, I will most definitely be doing it outside because it is a lot of good. Um the other thing I thought about is paper starships. Mm -hmm. So I got this book many, 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 many years ago when uh, I was still writing for sci-fi.com. And it's uh, paper starships. It's very basically origami starships from Star Trek that you can build and put on your tree. So it's got nice. like Klingon bird of prey. I mean, it was designed as origami. I'm going to put them on my tree. But you can build Klingon Bird of Prey, you know, Romulan Warbird, uh, various, you know, the Borg. I mean, the Borg is just a, just a square. It's a cube. It seems kind of like it's cheating. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's, yeah, it's a cube. It is a series of squares <laughs> <laughs> combined into some strange objects. It's three-dimensional. I'm not quite sure. Oh, yeah, right. Cube. Um, I'm sure it's harder than it looks. I've never yeah. actually attempted this. Like, I, I got the book. I, I think I, I built one of the very simple starships when I was doing the, the review for sci-fi. But... Uh, you know, we'll see. I, 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 I thought I was going to have more time in December than I actually did, uh, but it might be a thing I can do over Christmas break because I have a nice, I have a week off from work, and mm -hmm. this might be a nice little distraction. And then, you know, you put them away in the box, and you know, five years from now, when it's time to bring out the Star Trek Geek Tree again, I will have the ornaments ready to go. Thanks. And so that is the Geek Tree. Uh, next year, I think in Star Wars, um, unless the kids just completely rebel and say that we have to like put all of the ornaments back on the tree again, which again, I don't know how I could physically do. <laughs> yeah. You need a rotating base. We shall see. <laughs> and half the tree 
is Star Trek, and then you rotate the base, and the other half is Star Wars. Mm. But then you'd have to yes. figure out the yeah, electronics I... so that they wouldn't clash with each other. Yeah, I mean, someday I would love to build, like, I've had these dreams of, like, building a Lego geek tree mm-hmm. with, like, mechanic, mechanical pieces, like, nice. mechanized pieces that you build into it, but uh, I'm not quite that talented. I think <laughs> I think I would have to take some time and, like, come up with a build and figure out how to actually do it. We have a bunch of, like, Lego robotics kits. See, I, I disagree. Mindstorm. I think you are <laughs> definitely talented enough to do that. You just probably don't have the time to do it yes i i do think it is actually more of a time thing than it is anything else because it's just programming right you just need yeah. to like sit down and figure it <laughs> just out <programming>. but <laughs> it's just programming come every, up with a plan and execute it every programmer out there just cringed a little <laughs> <laughs> and they know what i mean yes i will say my son my son has joined uh, a robotics club at his school and uh in january they will be getting uh, they have a competition. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if you all have a, a robotics club at your school, uh, high school, but uh, the idea is is that in January they get a goal for what their build is going to be. Like it's it's a game basically. Like so, I think the year before last, um, they had to like shoot balls into a low target, and then you could get bonus points if you could shoot balls into a higher target, mm-hmm. and then even more points if you could shoot it into a target within the target. It's just programming. I mean, how hard could it be? Right, but. Right. Uh, <laughs> But so he's joining it for the first time. It's a new club. They've they've only they started in 2019. They had like one season, and then COVID hit, and now they're they're they've got the interest, but they haven't been able to actually get out and do it. So who knows? You know, we could have a totally robotic geek tree in 2022. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. So we had talked, I think, last time um, at one point about we were going to uh, talk about how we steal liberally from other game systems enhance the game system you're actually playing. This is something that I've been doing gaming-wise for quite a long time. There's been a lot of different games that I've enjoyed, and even if it's not stealing from a game system, but like house ruling or drifting the system a little bit, you know, I remember way back when D&D had weapon speed for as part of initiative, I changed initiative to have just one long set of initiative stuff where you'd roll initiative initially and then you'd add your weapon speed and your dex modifier, et cetera. And that would be your initial time you would go. And then once your action was over with, you'd add your weapon speed again. And that's when you went again. And so basically I had this, this printed out sheet of like one to 100. And then I'd mark all the different, different spots for when people would go as a way to to kind of drift the system. I'll tell you, that didn't work as well as I hoped. <laughs> the stealing liberally from other game systems, um, you know, it's 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 in that same vein. What are, what are some of the ways that you've stolen from other game systems to make your current game better? Yeah, you know, so I will say as an aside, you mentioned uh, that kind of initiative. Hackmaster by mm-hmm. uh, Kenzer and Company, they have a progressive initiative that's like that. I think there might actually be like you don't re-roll um you have like an initial roll that sets up the progression and i think there's modifiers that happen as you progress but being hackmaster it's it actually ran pretty smoothly but it's kind of crunchy because it's hackmaster and it's kind of crunchy <laughs> yeah i mean the, the where it fell down was when you had a person with a dagger and a person with a great sword a dagger had like 
a weapon speed of like two and a great sword had a weapon speed of like 12. So you'd have someone right. going stab, 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 stab. And then one person, if they were still alive, would get to swing once. Right. <laughs> I've seen certain cinematic interpretations that would back that up, but I can see how it could be problematic in yes. like a role-playing game. Right. So I think, you know, for us, my group, as we've talked about before, we're long-time Dungeons & Dragons players. We've we played 2nd Edition, 3rd Edition, 3.5, for like on down the line in various variants like, you know, Pathfinder. And so I think one of the things that we found was that whenever we go out and we play other games, it improves our core D&D game. And I think this is probably true for any game that you're playing because you go out and you're, you're exposed to new ideas and you're like, hmm, I wonder how I could make this work. So I think one of the things that um, we really enjoyed when uh, fourth edition D&D came out skill challenges and it's a, it's a similar school of to, to clocks i think in terms of your tracking it's a complicated task or complex task that you're tracking over time and skill challenges like the math was originally kind of wonky and there were all kinds of debates around that but the idea that you could set up a, a skill challenge a challenge in in dnd that isn't just um, go into the dungeon, kill a bunch of monsters, take their stuff, like where everything just be, basically comes down to a combat, right? And so to be able to have a skill challenge where you're um, navigating a dungeon or you're navigating a trap or you're figuring out how to talk to the king, right? Like all of these things were interesting and brought, you know, in the past, we certainly did those things. It's not like we needed the framework of a, sk of a skill challenge to be able to do it where you, you know, you need to complete, have a certain number of successes before three failures. Um, but it gave us a, a little bit of a framework, and I think it helped shape the encounters in interesting ways. And I think where it proved most helpful is when we stole liberally, uh, and, and eventually Watsi did as well because they incorporated Star Wars and uh, skill challenges into Star Wars. Was when we right. ran it in Star Wars because Star Wars is all about skill challenges, right? <laughs> like you know, if you look at the Battle of Endor, um, you know, it's, it's a skill challenge to get the bunker door open, right? Uh, you know, it's uh, hell assembling a, a lightsaber might be a skill challenge. Like, you know, negotiating yeah, your way into Jabba's palace is a skill challenge. Um, any extended and, and set I, of tests, you know, where right. it's like any, you can't roll once and have, you know, two hours worth of action happen because of one skill roll. You know, there's multiple right. parts in it that could fail or succeed. Amazing. And, and and in Star Wars, it's all about cutting between different scenes. So in D&D, where we were always hesitant to split the party, in Star Wars, you, we always, always had like the military types, the Jedi types, and the scoundrels and scout types that are, you know, having to defeat the mechanical thing, like figuring out how they're going to hack their way into the computer um, or get past the doors while the fighters are holding people off and the Jedi is trying to convince somebody to, you know, stand down. Right. And all of that's happening simultaneously in three different locations and you're cutting back and forth and it feels very star Warsy when you do it. And it also feels very star Warsy for the scout to be trying to figure out how to jury rig the speeder. <laughs> yeah. So they can get away. Right. Yep. Um, and in our, in our campaign, we used it in those kinds of situations. We used it. I remember one, I had a skill challenge where, um, there were some sort of large reptiles uh, chasing down the party through a through a desert. Their speeders had broken down. And so the skillful characters were trying to get the speeders running again, while the more martial characters were trying to fend off the animals that were attacking. Um, the most memorable one was a skill challenge that was navigating a protostar nebula where they had to complete the skill challenge to get from one side of the nebula to the other. And at the end of the skill challenge, they failed. 
Um, but failure is interesting, right? So they coasted out of the nebula with the outer side, outer edges of the ship having been completely fused shut. So they arrived at their destination and and couldn't figure out how to, like they had to figure out how to land because everything on the ship had been melted together. Right. And then going forward, they're just like, oh, our starship, it's got it's got a star fused armor. Star fused. Like, you guys armor. have star fused armor. <laughs> nice, nice. I like. It. Like so, they get there. The Jedi has to like use his lightsaber to cut out the landing gear, right? So. It was uh, it was very it was very cool and it was it was pretty memorable and I think skill challenges have stayed with us ever since. I haven't used them much lately, um, but it was a cool mechanic that you know it was like damn this this is an interesting way of challenging characters in a way that isn't just combat. What yeah. about you? Um, do we want to talk about more about skill challenges or do you want to go to the next one? Um. Uh, I think we can, we can probably go on to the next one. So, I mean, unless you I like, have, I don't know if you have a ex particular experience or skill challenges you want to go into, but. Uh, I can't, I don't have one in, in particular right now. I, I know that uh, I, the, what you were just saying with the, the star forged, ar star fused armor at the end um, does remind me about one of the things in uh, Blades in the Dark. Um, and also I think Powered by the Apocalypse games also have it where you have three when you're rolling you have kind of like different levels of success um definitely empowered right. by the apocalypse you can fail um you can succeed with no cost or you can succeed but there is a cost um and and there's a similar thing in in blades in the dark uh um and uh, scum and villainy where um you know you can bluff your way past uh past a guard uh and the guard you know or or a bouncer or whatever and they let you in but maybe you didn't succeed as well as you thought and somebody else like the security team who's watching the feed uh notices and you know trouble's gonna come or you know maybe a rival saw you enter uh and is gonna go gonna cause some trouble for you um uh, you know as time goes on but it it adds to the uh interest it you're in those games um most of the time uh and the way that i would run it is when you fail or you succeed at a cost especially it's not your character's fault um right which is one thing that that is easy to do you know it's like it's like the oh i'm I'm a, you know, in D&D terms, you know, like I'm an 18th level character. I roll a natural one on my, uh, on my D20. Well, that's going to happen 5% of the time. It's going to happen. Right. But I've, I've had GMs say, oh, well, you know, you slip on the banana peel and stab yourself with the sword because you're just that inept. Well, no, if it's going to happen 5% of the time and you're an 18th level character, that should be something that narratively speaking is like, you know, you overextend slightly um, and your opponent who is just as skilled as you takes advantage of that and, you know, twists your sword away uh, or something along those lines. Um, you know, and it's, there's a, uh, I think I, I munged two of them together, but the idea of you've got um, a success, uh, a, effectively a partial success um 
right that has a cost to it um i've really enjoyed having those things in my game as well it's been a a great boon to uh to the game and there's nothing that prevents you from doing that in D. it's just you change your worldview a little bit right instead of you know old school D, you find a lock in the dungeon you go to pick the lock you can pick the lock come back next level <laughs> yeah. yeah right or you can never pick that lock again in your right. life <laughs> or so you might as you well know, just roll if, up another character yeah and or if you didn't read those those rules um or you didn't play by those rules it's like oh you failed okay roll again okay roll again right okay roll. and eventually right. you'll get it i think this is kind of where the clocks part comes in that i love stealing uh liberally from blades in the dark which is <laughs> you know it's like oh you're you you failed at that lock well you do get past it. It just takes you longer than you expected. And the clock of the guards have discovered you is, you know, one or two or maybe three ticks closer to completing, ratcheting up the tension. You got to be even more careful from here on out so that you aren't discovered makes your job even harder. Right. So another mechanic that I've enjoyed, and it's it's now, I think it's in a lot of games. Hell, heck, it's actually even in D&D at this point, um, is Benny's as incentives. So giving players in-game rewards to encourage them to take risks. Um, the one that I'm most familiar with is Savage Worlds, and I think it really works well in Savage Worlds, where you have a Benny, and Savage Worlds is a very swingy system to begin with, right? So you can roll the dice, and um, you can have spectacular successes, successes because dice explode. You know, you get a mm-hmm. six on a six-sided die, uh, you roll it again, and then you can just keep rolling every time it explodes. And that can lead to some spectacular things, which lead you to want to jump off the side of a building to rescue, you know, the falling baby because you think you can do it, right? Yeah. Or you know, you're like, you know, Neo in the Matrix, you're going to jump between two buildings and like the system you know, supports I that. I can't possibly do that. Right. But yeah. in Savage Worlds, you can. And the Bennies are a big part of that because you know by do, what it do, what it's doing and what systems like it are doing is incentivizing you to say if you do something cool and you spend a Benny, uh, first of all, the Benny's got your back. You've got 3 of them to spend. Uh, so if you don't fail, the, if you don't succeed the first time, you might succeed the second or third times. And I'm going to give you another Benny for doing something super cool. So do super cool things because <laughs> that's what you want to do, right? I think uh, Cortex is another system that was like this. So, you know, powered Serenity and Firefly and Battlestar Galactica yep. and Leverage and a bunch of other uh, cool games. And it was like that when I played Battlestar Galactica at Gen Con for the first time. Uh, the DM who was teaching us how to play it was, you know, and I was asking him questions because that was another game that I was reviewing at the time for sci-fi. And um, he was like, let the plot points fall like rain. Don't be skin. Don't be stingy. Like as a DM, like you want it's part of the economy of the game. The game is designed to include this. So spend it. And I think that's one of the problems with D and D fifth edition and inspiration is everybody has to remember that it's there. And you only get one. one, I think. You only get one, so you have a tendency to hoard it. Whereas I bet yeah. you if it were like three or four, people would be more inclined to to want to spend it. Kind of yeah. like force points in various iterations of Star Wars, right? Yeah. I think the initial West End game Star Wars with force points, you know, um, that was kind of the proto-Benny, I think. Um, you know, it's it's a way that you have a certain amount of points, and if you spend them in a heroic fashion you know that you'll at least probably get that one back at the end of the adventure. And maybe if it's really amazing, you'll get an extra one back. So it's, it's encouraging those, 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 you know, jumping across the chasm and, and fighting inside of the reactor core, uh, right. sort of, you know, swashbuckling sort of adventures. 
you know, when you spend it, you double the dice and all your skills. So you become a, a super powerhouse for that round and, and can do amazing things. You know, there's a couple other, other games. I, when I was running Serenity games at Gen Con under the after Serenity banner for as a living campaign sort of thing, I'd certainly had the plot points fall, fall like rain. You know, if people role played well, if people made people around the table laugh, right? Any of those things like that, anything that was enjoyable to the table, to me, to other people at the table, I'd give those out by giving them out freely. They were spent freely, right? Because you know, as you have that trust that as a player, I can make take this risk and put myself out there, and even just taking a role playing risk, not even necessarily like a mechanical, like I'm trying to right. attack this thing or, or defeat the computer sort of risk, but an actual me as a human being, I'm going to go over the top in my role playing or really lean into my character because I know that I'm going to get bennies. Yep, yep. Actually, that was one of the things way back, uh, slightly off topic. One of the things that we used to do with D and D, we did individual experience. We all kind of did it the same. We'd have a sheet. People would write down why they thought they got experience. And role-playing was one of those things. And role-playing actually was the thing that got you the most experience out of the night. Not combat, not anything else like that. So, you know, it's like, hey, I did this. I role-played this, blah, blah, blah. That was the thing that got role-playing to happen more often for some people was because they knew if they were role-playing that they'd get a benefit from it in XP, but then role-playing became its own reward. They're right. still getting the XP, but they realized that role-playing is actually, hey, it, it's fun. It's more fun than rolling dice for combat. Let's do that thing. Yeah, I've really seen players like who just kind of come out of their shells uh, when they're when they're playing with these kinds of mechanics and then it carries yes. over back into the main game. Cause they like they're even when there's not that incentive, like they, they got that hit and they want more. Right. Yeah. So that yeah. was, that was cool to see. Yeah. Another one that's similar, but slightly different is, uh, is fate points in fate. Yes. Those are interesting because there's, there's two ways, two ways that they're used. They don't fall like rain in like serenity. <laughs> they do not. <laughs> But they can have a very back and forth sort of relationship with the game. As a GM, you know, you or I could compel someone to to do something that is in character for their character, but maybe not the best idea. <laughs> you know, right. every all the characters in Fate have aspects that can be a positive or a negative. If a character is, I'm trying to come up with a example here but you know if a if a character is beloved by all pretty generic usually they're a little more specific than that could you know that as that player they could then spend maybe a social interaction they could spend a fate point and get a bonus on a roll well i could also right. compel and say hey you're walking down the street you're supposed to be keeping an eye on that storefront across the way uh you know making sure that nobody goes in or out or or if they do you're you're keeping track of them you're beloved by all. And this group of people come up and recognize you and want to talk with you and get a selfie or whatever. And you as a player can go, Ooh, I really need to do that thing. And you can give the GM one of your, one of your fate points, which means you have less to work with in the future, or you can accept a fate point for free, but something might've happened in that time when you were taking selfies with your admirers. There is a give and take to it 
that can be pretty interesting, but it does lend more to uh, like a more of a Dresden Files sort of feel to it that the more powerful you get, the less personal choice you kind of have. Okay. The more powerful you are, the fewer fate points you get be just systematically. Right. And so you have to accept compels just to get the fate points you need to, to do the things that you have to do, you know, save the people whatever and so it's and it's less like a wushu martial arts movie <laughs> right right <laughs> i think i think the thing i enjoyed when we were doing the army corps of engineers and coming up with my own character but also coming up with the with the adventure was how aspects could inspire both the game and your character right so my character was last in his class in mit mm -hmm. uh, right which you know on the plus side it's a pretty smart guy he went you, to mit you were an mit Right. I was in MIT. Right. But I was last in my class at MIT. So, you know, occasionally, you know, oh, everybody else is going out for beers. Do you want to go out for beers? I don't know. You were your last in your class at MIT, like probably yep. skated by that last semester. Right. Um, or I think my other one was uh, I can hit the broad side of a barn. Yeah. You know, I can hit the broad side of a barn things smaller than that might be a challenge and so i think as a as a character as a player coming up with your character you're kind of thinking of those interesting aspects that are going to be useful in different areas but also have that kind of hook for the dm that the gm is going to be able to say hey well you know yeah. you were last in your class in mit that is where i think we could take this idea of aspects and pull it over to say something like dnd if you as right. your group had used the backgrounds and things like that that are in D&D that you kind of roll up or choose. I mean, that's supposed to help you with your character and to help you role play. But if you use those as kind of like aspects um, or even just throw away the backgrounds and make aspects for your character, Herald of Lord Muckety Muck, instead of being like a noble or something like that as a, as a background, that would that could be something that your GM could latch onto, you could latch onto as a player, and then maybe drift that that inspiration a little bit, allow for more than one. And so that if Lord High Muckety Muck is uh needing his herald and is compelling you to do your job, oh well, if you have something that you want to you have to do with the party, you might have to give up an inspiration to resist that in a role-playing sort of fashion. But then if you accept it, well, that can cause complications for the party, but you're going to get another inspiration for it. But right. but you have to kind of break a little bit of the the rules as written for D&D &D to allow right. for multiple points of inspiration. Yeah, and I think, you know, it reminds me, uh, 13th Age, uh, which is a variant of 4th uh, &D Edition, played with around with some of this, where they had backgrounds for your characters that were tied to... Gosh, I just brought up the, the wiki page so I could see if I could remember this really quickly because you made me think about it. But there are like, you know, archetypes within that realm that your character's background is tied to an archetype like the mage or death or whatever. Right. And those are okay. those aspects are actual out in the world. And the game forces you or compels you or, or uh, encourages you to bring your background into play uh, because you are like a scion of this power within the realm. And and it's cool, right? Like, because I think that's the thing that I've enjoyed, and I think there are there have been variant uh, systems for third edition. I know D and D. Um, I haven't spent enough time looking at Xanathar's Guide or or uh, Tasha's Holdren of Everything or whatever to see what they've introduced. But I know mm -hmm. that they've, they've had plot point mechanics, they've had you know honor mechanics and other things that I think you could riff on if you're looking for ways to like 
to bring these kinds of things into the game. Because I think one of the things that role-playing games often suffer from is, well, I have these flaws. You're, you know, you're a marked man with a death wish and it never, never comes, comes up. up. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, and that's part of it on us as dungeon masters to, um, to remember and as game masters to kind of remember and, and know what our characters are about. But even the players, like the players aren't incentivized to bring that up. Right. Whereas, you know, if you're a man with a death wish, fate's going to make you want to use that. Yeah. This is definitely off topic, but players making their own backgrounds, but having it be a secret background and not telling the other players, <laughs> not, not, right. not the other characters. That's fine. But not telling the other players, there's no point there, you know, like in my mind, if you have this deep, dark secret, but it never gets acted upon by the GM or the other players or, or something happens with it in the story, there was no point writing it in the first place, which sounds right. really harsh, but you know, like only if there's an inner struggle you're the only one who's going to know that there's the inner struggle and it's not going to matter to anybody else at the table if it doesn't affect your, your play, you know, but like in most novels, that deep, dark secret sometimes comes out, you right. know, and you should, you should talk with the GM and say, Hey, let's do this. You know, let's have it come out uh, or let's figure out something. But also I'm fine with, I used to not be, but I, I am fine with talking about, this cool idea that I have for my character that is supposed to be secret to the other characters, but talking about it with the other players and say, Hey, this is what I'd like to do with this character. I'm going to tell you about it now, but we'll role play out what actually happens if it ever comes out. Right. I think, I mean, I think it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's the, the Chekhov's gun yes. of uh, character backgrounds, right? Like if your parents, if your family was murdered by ninjas, uh, in your backstory, one would expect those ninjas to come back up yeah. <laughs> in the third act. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. By the third act, we sh you should have ninjas. I mean, I mean, you even saw it in, um, my gosh, in Serenity uh, with, why am I forgetting? Uh, Summer Glau's character. Of course, you said that, and I can't remember either. Now, yeah. Right. But anyway, she her whole backstory, Simon she has a backstory. And River. River. There yeah, you go. River's right? backstory. There's a backstory there. Yeah. It happened off screen. It shows up. It drives a significant portion <laughs> of the season. You get to the conclusion in the movie Serenity, right? Like yep. uh, there's a payoff there that is helpful to have. And, and when you're designing your character, it's cool to have those, but then also, you know, actually come back to it. Right. Cause if it, like to your point, if it's just flavor for yourself, I guess maybe it's informing your character, but not really driving yeah. the story forward and it might cause your character to act in ways where you know it's weird and it starts to alienate other people in the group because like why are you doing that like well i can't tell you right. part of my character's secret background like well then right. what's the point right <laughs> if it's but gonna it, come out eventually but that's and the thing plan, is, then okay. <laughs> like like if if it's if it's told to the other players the characters could still go why are you doing this and they's like i can't tell you right but player wise it's it ends up being cool or fun and not frustrating because it's not the player going, Oh, you can't know because it's a super secret thing. And I can't tell you if it's out of character knowledge, you can actually play into that better. Yeah. Right. And, and, and actually everybody can have fun with it at that point. 
riffing on that a bit, going back to the spirit of the century um, and various iterations of, of fake games over the years, like the idea that you had these a starting connection with two other characters that was yes. that was part of your backstory. You had serial adventures with them previously, and and not everyone has adventured before, but everyone has someone in the group whom they have been with before and and have gone on some adventure before that they can reference back to. And um and I think that was cool. Like Dungeon World I think did something similar. Mm-hmm. And I think having those things, you know, at it, going back to Firefly, right? Like we see that with like war stories, right? Like where you've got some of the characters fought in the war and they have connections. But um other characters who did nefarious things <laughs> together and they have connections. And so it just helps drive everything forward. And and maybe you never use it, but it's there and you can call back to it, right? Like, oh, you remember that time in the war? Yeah. And actually that that idea right there, it reminded me, uh, I think it was um, Judd Carlman's podcast, which I'm blanking on at the moment. Daydreams with Dragons. Daydreaming about dragons, right. There was a Twitter post that they put out and it was a just a hey how do you get all your players to start in the same place and not just like stick them in an inn and his answer to that was was super easy you tell your players hey when you're making your characters figure out why they're all together <laughs> right you know and it's it goes back to when spirit of the century and fate was like built um which is far too long ago now to me it seems like yesterday but in in the gaming industry terms it's been quite a long time uh but when the the, that those games came out like that was a like still a serious sort of problem i mean it never really seems to go away but that was a systematic way to make your players talk to each other and get them to all know each other somehow rather than right. you know six people in dark cloaks all in separate corners of this of the bar um and then the gm <laughs> has to interweave them all together and somehow figure out how to get them not only get the party together but also go on the adventure that they have planned right so another mechanic that I liked, I, I, again, this was in Cortex. I know it was in Cortex. Uh, I'm sure there are other systems that have used this, um, but narrative control mechanics. So um, games that encourage players to uh, spend resources to seize control. like, And so sometimes that's uh, spending dice to negate a result. Sometimes it's to rewrite the scene. Well, no, no, there was that gun on the wall. Don't you remember? Yep. You know, those kinds of mechanical things with with Cortex, like, again, it was one of these sorts of like, you're in a desperate situation and all of a sudden you're like, but wait, the emergency hatch is right there. And I spend uh, some dice and suddenly, you know, the the emergency controls are right there. And again, it's encouraging me to spend those resources that I've accumulated. Uh, We we actually stole that one for D&D. We were playing third edition in one of my campaigns. and It was cool. Yeah, it was it made fights interesting. Right. Yeah. Like, well, you know what? You know, there's a bar- there's a bunch of barrels right over there. Did you see them? Plop two dice down. Right. Instant cover. Yeah, there's there's uh, there's a couple of games that, you know, Fate kind of does it. Cortex System, which is what you were just talking about, definitely does it. Having those things that give players narrative control. I mean, when you're playing, when you're really little playing make believe cops and robbers, whatever. You say, hey, I've got this thing, and you do have that thing, because that's, you know, that's the how the loose the rules can be. You know, as you grow up, you kind of want something to be quote unquote fair. 
And so, <laughs> right. <laughs> and so like spending dice or spending points as a player here, this is what I'm going, this is what I want to have happen. And here is the currency I'm using to spend to make that happen in game also helps. It also helps with the GM going, okay, I know this sort of thing will happen and I need to be prepared for things like that to happen. And I know that they're going to have to spend some currency that they could spend somewhere else as well to make those things happen. Like having the escape hatch be right there or having, you know, the car breaks down and, Oh, I've got my, my buddy, Joe, he's got a garage only a mile away. He can come out with the tow truck and, and get us moving again, sort of thing, depending upon all sorts of, you know, whatever game you're in. I really enjoy those, those mechanics. It gives players uh, in some ways an easy out, but I've often found that it just adds to the role-playing and adds to the depth of the story to say, hey, we have this thing, or hey, I know a guy to contact to get this info. And it, and it didn't have to be on a five-page character background write-up that I wrote up for my character six months back. I can just right. spend the points for it, and, and it's there. It's kind of like flashbacks with uh, Scum and Villainy and Blades in the Dark. Right. To get around the planning, you you call for the flashback. And the currency you have in that is stress. You you take a point right. or two of stress that you're going to have to bleed off and some at some point, you know, after the heist is over, but it allows you to to go back and say, "Yeah, I set it up with the with the bouncer that he's going to let us in. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, it, it's perfectly valid argument and there are games that work just fine. Like, a, like a, your GURPSs or your, your castles and crusades where it's very simple rule set, you know, old school Renaissance style games where, you know, you're playing some flavor of basic D and D really stripped down rules. And yeah, sure. You know, just use your imagination and say, you know, you, you can do all of these things without the rules. But I think what I have found is that, depending on your group, sometimes having those rules helps pull people out of their shells. Like I was saying previously, like, you know, your power gamers, they're always going to power game and your power role players, they're always going to role play, but not everybody thinks or acts the same way. Like not everybody's brains are wired the same way. And so by bringing some of these tools into your game, you can, you can incentivize those people to come out of their shell and to yeah. try different things. And it, it feels like because you know you have your power gamer who likes to use the mechanics, but they're not really big into role playing. But suddenly they're big into role playing because they know they can get the uh, the mechanical bonus for doing the thing, right? Because it says it right there. Yeah, I've actually <laughs> seen. Suddenly, you know, you're bringing them together. <laughs> yeah, I've seen the the power gamer or or the combat monster, you know, the the person who makes their character so they can do a particular thing. Actually, make a character who wasn't a hundred percent combat monster because they knew. That if they wanted to punch a T-Rex in the face and get away with it, they had, you know, the bennies or the extra points or or these other narrative pe things that could keep their character alive and yet still be able to punch the T-Rex in the face. And it made for a more rounded character, a lot more role-playing, and still be effective everywhere else. Like if right. if if they got into combat, they weren't hurting because they put an eight in their strength or something like that. Right. <laughs> right. So the, the last mechanic that I've really enjoyed and I've stolen for other games uh, is downtime. 
and travel narrative mechanics. So Savage Worlds has uh, what are called interludes. And I, I, I gotta say, I mean, I, everybody knows I love Savage Worlds. Savage Worlds has all these nice little levers that you can like shift up and down to change the nature of the campaign or just like, you know, they have a complex skills option. Um, but this is one of the things that they have are interludes where you draw from a deck of cards. Each suit is connected to a particular like narrative, right? So I can't, I think hearts were like romance and spades were danger, so forth and so on. Like I think diamonds were riches, right? And so when you draw it, you come up with, you tell a story to the other people at the table the other, the other characters on the plane, right? So you're doing the, instead of just the drawing the red line as Indy is traveling around the world, going to his next destination, right? You've got the the story, you know, gather around all ye children for I have a story to tell. And like, you know, yeah, war story, more like the war stories. Like you're kicking back nice. in the plane and it's rattling and there's a thunderstorm outside. And it's like, this reminds me of the time we fought the gremlins over France, right? Nice. It's a cool mechanic and it incentivizes you. I think in, in that case, uh, you either got another Benny or there's these uh, these adventure deck cards where you could, you get a mechanical bonus where if you, you could draw the card and it, it gives you something special. Um, so that was cool, right? Because it, it, it in Again, it was encouraging people to to either bring out aspects of their backstory that they hadn't shared yet or come up with some new aspect of a backstory that until that moment they didn't even realize they had. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that idea. I know that they've got like downtime and stuff in D&D 5th edition and such, but I don't think it works quite like that. It's more No. That seems that seems the downtime stuff there seems more like I have some long-term plans that we don't want to role play through and and this is how to get them done or going back way back to like first edition where you get a castle and retainers and things like that. <laughs> right. Like automatically when you read a cert reach a certain level, I haven't played with those mechanics. So if I'm wrong, I apologize, but that's, that's the way those feel in D and I personally would much rather have a downtime mechanic like you just described where it's bringing out more role-playing and, benefits a character enriches the world and enriches that group i think you know in i think it was second edition and i can't remember if this was a house rule or if it was actually a second edition DD rule but we always played the rule that when you leveled up you had to spend gold and uh time in weeks equal to your level to get training and the interesting thing about that looking back was that it forced the calendar to actually advance Right, like you can be playing D and D, and Diddy D and D can do any role our role playing game can just turn into this linear thing where you're just like time progresses and just keep going on to the next adventure, and before you know it, you've got tenth level characters and a month has passed. Yeah, uh, but that's not how the fiction works, right? The fiction anticipates you know months, years could pass between adventures. I mean, gosh, look at the wheel of time and how long it takes to get to the end of that particular epic adventure. Right. Or, you know, the Lord of the Rings or what have you. Right. There is significant downtime and things actually happen during that downtime. So mm -hmm. Xanathar's Guide introduced um, some downtime mechanics for D&D &D that maybe kind of split the difference. So you can, it has rules for like crafting magic items, but it also has rules for like carousing. Right. So your character goes out on the town and uh, depending on how you roll, you come back with some contacts. And and that's interesting. Or an enemy, right? So you you gain a new negative NPC because you insulted the noble at when playing dice, or you know you have a new ally because you saved said noble when he insulted somebody. That sounds <laughs> at the table, right? That sounds a lot like they may have cribbed from Blaze in the Dark and Scum and Villainy, because that sounds a lot like the the downtime or the between missions of Blades in the Dark, where yeah. you have two downtime activities. One is usually to reduce your stress, 
you indulge your vice because in Blaze in the Dark, you're a criminal. And, you know, so you right. go off and you carouse or you gamble or whatever. And then the other could be some sort of long-term goal that you're you're doing, or you could do more carousing because you had a lot of stress. Your describing of that sounds very familiar to uh, the way yes. Blades in the Dark does it. So I'm wondering, I mean, any good game designer is going to read lots of different games in order to do exactly what we're talking about right now. In order to make their game right. better they're going to understand other games and take ideas from those and change them so they fit in the in the the rule set that they're building the, you know you're going to be able to identify the dna with some of these things if you know when certain things came out for certain games and you look at it in a new edition of like oh yeah, that looks really familiar over here. Right. What Xanathar's lacked, if I remember correctly, was a way to really sort of compel that downtime. But it it does give you an incentive to want to do it. And uh -huh. I think as a DM, it gives people an opportunity to do with things like, hey, okay, we're skipping. You know, we want to do X, Y, and Z. And so, hey, here's some things where we get to roll some dice. Because, you know, when you play D&D, &D, everybody loves to roll dice. Right. We're going to go off and do those things. And I think it also gives you this opportunity to use skills that you might not normally get to, you know, use on your, you know, normal dungeon crawl yeah and i think i think one of the things that it can be difficult to add that into D D, or you know even with if it's in xanathar's guide it's an optional rule whereas yes exactly in blaze in the dark it's built into the dna of the game and yes you could drop it out and only play the heist but you'd lose something in the translation uh, if you didn't replace it with something else, right? It's interesting. You're, I, you're, you're, you're talking about the spending gold and and time uh, in like second edition right. and such. I think that was actually one of the things was usually house ruled out for most people. <laughs> but what the way you described it was like, oh, yeah, yeah. So it's basically like playing Skyrim and not sleeping. So you're right. just playing Skyrim. <laughs> And maybe five days have gone by and you've gone from a guy, a person who's in rags about to be killed because uh, they think you're part of this rebellion, the Stormcloak Rebellion, to I've just killed the strongest dragon in the world and uh, have mastery over everything. You know, all, all spells and, and everything had else to like sleep. that. And I never had to sleep in, an, in <laughs> all two weeks that I lived. And although I ate a whole lot, whenever I got injured, I ate my entire food inventory to regain all my health. It's totally realistic to eat yeah. 50 apples as a way of fending off the damage from a dragon. I yeah, mean, what's, and what's 10 wheels of cheese. That? Yeah, and 10 wheels of cheese. And 10 wheels of cheese. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that having downtime, is, it just opens up interesting narrative options for the larger story yeah. because because you go, oh yeah, that is, that is actually a trope and I can do something interesting with that. Yep. And and so I like systems that incentivize it. I like I like systems where, like you say, it's it's just part of the DNA. So you're just it just all works together. Not to say that you can't steal it and go somewhere else, but if you steal it, I think that's one of the things. Like one of the takeaways is figure out how you're actually going to make it a compelling aspect of the game. And and that's a challenge we have with inspiration right now is we have that rule. We often forget it. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, I give and when we meet in the real world, I give people physical bennies. So that they know that they have it in front of them and they're fidgeting with it and they know to spend it. But I mean, for whatever reason, when we play online, everybody forgets. 
I watched a decent portion of Critical Role, and they, you know, they play in the a decent portion of Critical Role's like season two, like their second set of characters, their campaign two. You know, they they play D anD D every single week for four or five hours at a time, and I only recall people using or being given inspiration maybe a handful of times. So even these people who are paid to play D&D every week don't don't use it because they forget about it. Right. In my mind I that's probably what's going I, I think that's what's going on is because it's it is not something that needs to be core to the game but also there's not a give and take. It's only a I will give you inspiration when I think you are are worthy of inspiration, but because inspiration is so limited, I will forget to give you inspiration when it when you actually right. deserve it. Right. And there are no class features or spells or other aspects of the game that would cause you to remember to use it. Right. right. If, you, if you're a rogue and you have a class feature that lets you do something spectacular, if you spend your spend your inspiration, get this result. That's more than just a D20 or a reroll. You know, you're going to be looking for the inspiration because it's it's baked in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I've when I played my last character was a sorcerer and it was a uh, sorcerer with the wild magic with wild magic. You can kind of generate inspiration for yourself, but I would always forget to use it as well. <laughs> right. You know, it, when you're doing something like Cortex and it's it's a, that giving and taking part of the system it's part of the dna of the system it makes using those things more uh, a lot easier because it's always in your mind to do those sorts of actions or to spend it to receive it etc in the case of inspiration i would like to see a change there to allow that to be more of a currency that could be changed and used more often because if a if a rule is not used very often why is the rule there is it really helping the game is it really making the game more fun if it's not used i would argue no it's not it's it's not making the game more fun (laughs) people will often hoard the inspiration because you only have one it's got to be super important of a role to use but if it was like you can use it and then five minutes later you got another one and then you use it and then five minutes later you got another one. You know, people will be using inspiration left and right. You know, there are ways to make that so it doesn't uh, unbalance the game or or make the game too easy for the characters to just win all the time. Yeah, I think, you know, another area where um, I feel like I've str- I've struggled, at least in the in the, the Saga Edition version of Star Wars, but I think other iterations of Star Wars may, may have suffered from this as well, is the whole light side, dark side piece where you know in the movies and in the books and in the comics it's it's a it's something that many characters it's that knife edge that they're walking Mm -hmm. as to whether they're going to go to the light side or go to the dark side and they're often given those choices and i don't know that mechanically like story-wise yes you can come up with those and we have but mechanically there wasn't anything that was reinforcing that that tension between the light side and the dark, the smuggler who could run for his life, but comes back to save his friends. You know, the, the sniper who has the shot, but doesn't take it because he can't, he can't, he he wants to redeem himself. Like those story moments, right. Or, or alternatively you give in and kill your dad (laughs) because you, uh, you, you need the dark side power, Mm -hmm. right. 
Um, or you turn away from killing your dad because the dark side power isn't worth it enough. And and I think that's a part where I feel like like we certainly struggled in Saga Edition. Yeah, I mean, even West End Games Edition, the early, early Star Wars, had an interesting mechanic for dark side points in that you could never spend dark side points. You could only gain them. You could then try and like redeem yourself to get rid of them, but it was a long, involved process. But the way you would gain them is kind of like a compel, but like, hey, you're in this battle and you're losing and you're going to spend a force point to make yourself better, but your opponent can also spend a force point. Maybe you're like afraid for your life and the GM could go, well, you're, you're really afraid. You could get a free, quote unquote, free force point because you could basically accept a dark side point and double your dice again to survive right. it. I think it was closer. It still wouldn't do the the sorts of scenes that you're you were talking about, like the sniper not taking the shot. Maybe they wouldn't take the shot if they're trying to redeem that dark side point that they already have. I think it was it was a good start, but I think that there's uh, there's definitely places like that that I would like to see some systems that allowed that sort of thing like compels is the closest that i've seen right you're gonna give in to your to your dark side your darker nature because you need that power later <laughs> you know sort of thing right 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 or it's going to save you right now or there's you know there's this aspect of desperation that's coming into play and what have you so yeah i agree mm -hmm. and, and we've never quite cracked it but it's uh i think that is an interesting area especially within within star wars but role-playing games in general like to to act in your against your own best interest or perhaps to act in your best interest but not those of your your fellow party members but in a way that doesn't that is that that is beneficial to the group overall in terms of the story that you're telling not because you're right. screwing over your fellow players right <laughs> that's right. where it becomes problematic right yes. i give keep, into the dark side player and character everyone. separate you know especially emotionally right because that younglings party that youngling party in Revenge of the Sith, like they were very surprised when their mentor turned to the dark side. It's like, yes. wait, whoa, whoa, wait, what? Yeah, yeah. You got a bunch of dark side points, and now you can kill a bunch of Padawans. What? Yep, that was a that was a unfortunate total party kill for that younglings group. <laughs> for, yes, for those young those youngling adventurers, just yeah. thought they were hanging out in the Jedi Academy. All of a sudden, it got dark really fast. Yep. Anyway, I we I know that there are many other games out there. Uh, we we didn't touch on anything like Chronicles of Amber, diceless role-playing, or any rules from that that might be drifted into thing into other games. There's a bunch out there. So if there are any that, that you, our dear listeners out there, would love to uh, share with us, uh, we definitely want to hear about them. How do you tell us that? We definitely love hearing from you guys. Send us feedback, podcast at layerofsecrets.com, or you can even send us a tweet at, at layerofsecrets. Uh, you can also visit layerofsecrets.com and leave us some feedback or, or new topic ideas or your own thoughts, like I said, of what we've actually talked about. Thanks again for listening. I've been David Moore, your sleep-deprived GM. And uh, Ken Newquist, your 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 crafty geek tree guy. <laughs>